Studentaftons podcast är sponsrad av TL Sound. I, I hate when Me Too movement is defined as something like oh women began to speak. No, women were talking always about the assaults and humiliations they faced. But that was the moment suddenly society paid attention. We suddenly started hearing them. Actually, the, this feeling that you are not heard as a woman and nobody was interested to listen to us. Everybody wanted to look at us, at uh, uh, women's bodies that serve the demands of uh, men and entertain or, or satisfy. And um, we said, well, you don't want to listen to us, you only want to look at us, then we're going to make you see what we want to say. Hello everyone and welcome to Student Afton. My name is Malin and I'm a part of the Student Afton committee here at the Academic Society. Tonight we are very honored to present to you uh, Exile, Activism and Feminism with Inna Shevchenko. And here to moderate this evening is author and journalist Katarina Rolfsdotter Jonsson. So please give a warm applause to Katarina Rolfsdotter Jonsson. <laughs> Thank you. On March 8th, last year, I had the pleasure of moderating a fantastic event in the context of We Have a Dream. It was at the Royal Theatre in Stockholm, Dramaten, and the speakers were our Foreign Minister Margot Wallström, the founder of one of the founders of Pussy Riot, among others, but the woman that made the strongest impression of all of these fantastic women. That was Ina Chichenko. She spoke with such clarity about we, what we need to transform in terms of women's rights and the freedom of speech. And she was so intense and so clear about us here in Sweden that we really, really have to keep on leading the way. So when I was asked just a month ago if I could come back for the fourth time and uh, be moderating the uh, student afton, I said, absolutely. So now I have the pleasure of interviewing Nechichenko for a full hour, mm -hmm. and after that, she's all yours to ask <laughs> questions to. So please give the fantastic activist, writer, and personality campaigner, brave warrior of feminism, a warm hand, Nechichenko. <laughs> It's wonderful <laughs> to have you here. You. We hugged already, just so you know. <laughs> so, Ina, when I read your story, and I've been keeping tabs on you, of course, since we met, um, there's one thing that really stands out, that when you were first contacted by Femen, you didn't really grasp the concept of feminism. That was all new for you. Absolutely. Um, indeed, I could say that I learned feminism thanks to famine, through famine, and with famine. And um, moreover, I would probably also suggest, or at least assume right now to myself even, um, 
I'm wondering, would I at all be able to um, get close to feminism, if not feminine? Because um, I'm, uh, I grew up, I was born and I grew up in a country which, um, which would probably be described as one of the least feminist societies, where women are still considered very often as a commodity, where sex tourism um, is one of the um, probably most famous attractions, um, where sex industry is very developed and obviously is built on economic vulnerability of women. And um, also as a young woman, as a young woman with a lot of ambitions, um, I felt that there was, there was not, not a lot of possibilities for me as a woman except of becoming someone's wife and mm -hmm. someone's mother eventually to succeed as a woman. And that was something, you know, when I was 19 years old, I was studying, I was studying journalism, and I noticed at that time that I was already at the beginning of that process that probably most of Ukrainian women pass, the process of acceptance. The process of just accepting that that's, that's your conditions, that's where you are, and that's probably what you're supposed to become. You know, you're probably supposed to adopt this lifestyle that the society dictates to you and, um, and suggests. And um, if I did not, do all of that, it's once again thanks to famine, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and I will just uh, come, uh, go immediately maybe to one of the last questions usually moderators ask me, um, and this question is what are you uh, proud of, or what are your results as a, as a movement as such and as an activist? And of course we can come back to that and talk about specific campaigns, specific questions, political questions, but. I always, um, I always emphasize and say that the most important result and the most important thing for me as an activist, for the movement as such, for feminine movement, is exactly this, changing lives of real women, just like myself. I'm one of those many other women who, first of all, change their own perception of themselves, change their own vision and feeling of their own body and definition of what they are as women and in this body and eventually changing the life, yeah. Fantastic. In those, when you were contacted by Femin, you, you worked as a press officer. You studied journalism and you worked as a press officer for the mayor of Kiev. Yes. <laughs> and then Femin contacted you and what happened then? This was in 2009, so 10 years ago, right? Yes. Um, so, look, I'm a, um, I'm a refugee. Mm. I live in exile, in a political exile in France. But I think I'm exiled in my life in many other ways and many other forms. And Femin was probably my first exile. Mm. And um, uh, Femin provided me this exile from, um, from the situation in which I suffocated in which I could not once again be free um, and realize my own um, ambitions and desires. I wanted to be a journalist. I dreamt to become a journalist, and this dream arose in me uh, um, during my teenage time, during a very specific political context in my country, during Orange Revolution. And that was the time in 2004 when in my country new free media um, started to be formed, and that was something revolutionary. I know that here in Sweden, probably, you 
don't take it as something special, but indeed for me as for a teenager, that was a revolution. I suddenly saw political debates, discussions on TV. I suddenly could read newspapers with different opinions, not with one opinion given by state. And that was absolutely um, eye-opening and just, just so attractive and so inspiring. And that was the moment when I formed my own dream that I want to be that person who will um, highlight different points of view and contribute to this uh, big and uh, beautiful idea of building democratic society in Ukraine. And I studied journalism and I studied very hard, I tried very hard, and I got this prestigious job in the uh, press office of Kiev government. But everything I, was, uh, I could do, and actually what I was asked to do, is to give this one opinion. Mm. One opinion given by the administration, given by the politicians, the comfortable opinion to the power. So, um, all of a sudden, I could, I, you know, from outside, and my relatives, my friends, uh, my um, friends in the university were in a, in a way even jealous, saying, well, you made it, you became a journalist, you didn't even still, you didn't finish your education. But I understood that actually now, by, by having this experience as a journalist, I actually ended up, I, I finished being a journalist. Mm -hmm. Sounds like my, my dream was suddenly collapsed. I could not say what I wanted to say. I had to say what others mm -hmm. wanted to say, but I had to say it with my own name, with my own, uh, you know, with my own words. And that was not only dishonest, that was humiliating. And so this big dream collapses and just gets destroyed. And then you understand that the only way in that context and in that situation, the only way to be heard is literally going in the street and screaming out. And that's what I did. But the other thing is that you should not ignore, and I did ignore at the beginning, but later I understood that you could go and scream, literally scream in the street and be heard, unless you're a woman. I forgot that I was a woman and that my woman's voice is not really counted. And that was kind of the, the, the something that Femin understood and Femin, Femin, um, with Femin we managed to bring women's voice out without really the actual voice because we transformed our bodies into our mm. voices. And this, of course, riding on your naked torso is what a very, was a very controversial method, and you were also critiqued for using your bodies like that. Could you elaborate on, on why you did it, and also a little bit about the critique? Right, why we did it, I probably already started the whole, the mm. whole like the background of it. It was actually the, this feeling that you are not heard as a woman, and nobody was interested to listen to us. Everybody wanted to look at us, at uh, uh, women's bodies that serve, the demands of uh, men and entertain or, or satisfy. And um, we said, well, you don't want to listen to us, you only want to look at us, then we're going to make you see what we want to say. And that's how we transform these bodies into what we say political tools or literally into a posters. Our chest became the posters uh, on which we write our demands and our slogans, and of course that was very controversial from the very beginning, 
it's still controversial now mm. and I can't believe it. Mm. Um, it was, of course, a very controversial and taking with a lot of, you know, it was a big scandal. What? How is this possible? Um, naked women, not in brothel, not on the cover of a um, sexist magazine, but suddenly on a polling station where a future president is coming to vote. Um, so what we did, we took out this uh, woman's naked body that was usually, uh, in the eyes of everyone, accepted as something that's supposed to be in a sexual context. And we took it out from there and put it inside a political context and said that our bodies are political. And it's not just because we decided that those bodies are political. The society made it political. Because if you think about every question, most of the subjects of feminism, and if you think about most of the issues with which women deal in, whenever we talk about oppression of women and various forms of oppression of women, most of the times it will be linked to her body. Woman's body is in the center of women's oppression. And what we said, we're going to take it out and we're going to put it in the center of our own liberation. It will become our own tool of our own liberation. We're going to define now when our bodies will be sexual and when they also will be political. We're going to decide now. And the first messages that you wrote, what, what, was, uh, what was those messages? What did they the say? The first messages were during, well, it was the, actually, I skipped a very important part about famine that for the first two years, there was no question of doing this controversial topless mm. protest, you know. For two years, the famine movement existed doing sort of a street theater um, protest with, a lot, with huge banners, a lot of data, statistics, information that, of course, everybody ignored. Um, we were waving flags in the air, um, I don't know, carrying balloons <laughs> to attract at least some interest to what we wrote on those banners. We were ignored. We were... Uh, we were a political feminist group in a very apolitical society, a political society, a society with a lot of fear towards politics and obviously a lot of fear towards feminism. And so it's in 2010 that Femin did its first topless protest, while the movement already existed since two years. And why we did the first topless protest was because the context in the country completely shifted. It was about to shift. The dictator who then later became a dictator and really um, um, set up the dictatorial system in the country, Viktor Yanukovych was about to win. And that was the reason why we literally said, nobody hears us, so how can we scream that loud that they would finally pay attention? And we understood that as you know, you, we could scream as loud as possible. They would not listen to women's voices. And what we understood that we have to provoke, we have to shock, we have to, to create scandal, literally create scandal to make people care about something. And uh, that in that context, that was the necessity. And that's why in that context, it worked. In 2011, <coughs> You were protesting uh, political prisoners, their, their capture of them, them, them in Minsk, in Belarus. And you were yourself captured and you were tortured. Could you please tell us about this and how that affected you in, uh, in the future? You know, um, something happened yesterday. Um, 
Yesterday, I, I was driving with a friend in a car, and we turned on the radio to listen to the news. And um, the news um, on the radio, they said that uh, uh, Lukashenko won, the Alexander Lukashenko, the infamous president of Belarus, the dictator, um, won again the parliamentary elections, and that not even one opposition leader got a seat in the parliament, not mm -hmm. even one. So no opposition as such in the parliament. And I, I was not surprised to hear this news. This is the situation since 1994 in that country. But I was surprised that suddenly a wave of this feeling of hate. Mm. I felt suddenly a lot of hate. And this bothered me so much. I could not understand what's going on and why, why so much hate suddenly towards a person while I'm someone who refuses hate by, by definition as such, and, but I felt so much hate. And um, I understood that I did not forgive, and I understood also that I will never forgive. Yeah. But I don't want to hate. And I understood why I hate this person and why I hate this politician. It's a personal hate linked to the traumatisms that, of course, I lived um, and experienced myself as an activist, but. I also know that what really made me, makes me hate him still is that realization that this, this monstrous man is still in power, that it's one of those people who rule us, who rule um, our societies, who rule lives of millions of people. And so this hate is linked to the experience that we went through in 2011, three of us. Three activists, we did a sort of a mocking, ironic, uh, protest mocking the dictator Lukashenko because also it's something that we adopted with famine during the, uh, throughout the years. We understand that you have to, uh, something that the dictators and tyrants don't understand, they don't understand humor. Mm. They are not able to laugh. They're able to use guns, violence. Whenever you're violent against them, they win because they know that well. That's their language. But they're not able to laugh. They are not funny. They are not funny and they cannot laugh about themselves. And that's the worst thing. Mm. And so we came with an action to make fun of a dictator. We basically mocked him, we wore moustache and you know, military uniform, and we came to support the political prisoners in the country that um, disappeared. Mm. Um, once you are arrested during a protest in Belarus, that actually the protests that do not take place anymore in the country really, um, but if you are arrested, you, you most likely you will just disappear. And um, we came to support those activists and what happened to us is that several hours after we disappeared ourselves. We were um, grabbed at a bus station. Um, we were preparing to leave uh, the country after the protest and go back to Kiev. And we were basically grabbed by a group of adult men um, a dozen of them and thrown into mini vans, into mini buses. And uh, we spent the whole night being interrogated in those mini vans by this group of men who did not hide that they are from KGB. Um, by the way, KGB is still an official institution in Belarus. They did not change the name like in Russia, mm. they changed it. Interesting. Um, but it's mm. still, they're mm. proud of having KGB. And um, and then after the whole night of interrogation, we were given into the hands of another group of men. And those uh, men 
were not asking us anything anymore. They told us to shut up and not speak at all. Um, they put uh, plastic handcuffs behind um, on our hands. They told us to uh, sit and not move. We had to hold our heads uh, between our knees. And in this position, we had to drive for several hours and listen regularly. Every 10, 15 minutes, we would hear a voice of one man who would repeat how they're going to punish us, what they're going to do with us, how they're going to kill us, uh, how they're going to torture us, and how, how they're going to send uh, our bodies to our mothers. Um, he said that we have to breathe loud because that's the last hour we can breathe. So there were a lot of... They used the professional tactics of torture, psychological torture, and after that followed the physical torture in the forest itself. And then in the forest we were abandoned. And uh, that's, that's something we experienced after one of those protests that many people still consider something as a superficial, right? Or, I don't know, those um, people do not take it serious. Because very often people ignore that behind that picture of that naked girl with slogan and flower crown and poster, sometimes there are also experiences like this. And um, I was 21 years old at that time. And that's not my only experience uh, of brut brutality and violence in my life, but that's the first experience. And it's something that, um, you know, those experiences, even if you live such life like I do since 10 years, you're engaged in this activity, those experiences, it's, it's, it's nothing you can forget. Mm. It's nothing you can um, kind of put aside. It's something you have to live with and you have to find out how you're going to live with it. And um, so yesterday when I was driving in the car and I felt this hate, I understand that I still did not find out how to live with this trauma because I still have so much hate towards this man. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that I will stop hating him because I want to stop hating him and I will stop hating him once he will be gone from the power. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a strong, strong story you tell. Would you say that you can use this anger or even hate as fuel for your activism and for your work? Because, I mean, you do work very hard with this. Uh, well, I think that uh, for first years of my activism, the fuel was probably the feeling of, um, you know, being desperate mm -hmm. and not having where to go as a woman and not having where to speak and not having where to be heard. And so this was the fuel. Mm -hmm. And then after experience like this, when you understand that there are people who are, there are systems, there are people in power, the people who we consider to be powerful, um, they are ready to, to do you know, to, to do things like they did to us in Belarus, for example, during 24 hours. Um, two or three girls who took off their tops and wrote slogans on their bodies. Mm. And then you understand how fragile those systems are. And then the fuel becomes, hope becomes the fuel. Wonderful. You know, and that's something that probably uh, drew me and helped me to, to continue after such experience. The most common question I was asked um, after, in particular, experience in Belarus, how can you continue? And that's exactly what this. I was wondering myself, how can I continue? Well, I felt the, the, the heaviness and the trauma. I understand. I, I felt it in my core and I still feel it. 
but I knew that because I saw how actually afraid they are, and it was not us who were afraid or vulnerable, they were. Otherwise, why would they react like that? Why would they would be uh, two groups of adult men who have nothing else to do in their life than torture three girls who took off their tops and wrote freedom for political prisoners? That's quite absurd when you think about it. Really, it is. But the only explanation mm -hmm. I have is their fragility, their fear, and their weakness. Inna, you were granted asylum in France. What, what preceded this? You, the reactions after the, uh, the, the, uh, the assault of you and your colleagues and the escape, you had to escape uh, Ukraine. Could you tell us about this, please? In the last, uh, well, last years, I, they were not last years, but I, uh, in the years before, in the, I think a year before I left, this year was a very, already very difficult year for the movement. We already had several criminal cases open against the movement. There were, um, there were many uh, accusations planted, many, even some crimes planted, you know, things that we were just not even there mm. physically. Um, so there was a very clear signals that uh, from the government that um, they, are, they, they got serious about us and they really don't want us anymore to try even to do anything. And at that, that time it was already very difficult to organize any protests because we would, our activists would, our phones would be listened, we would be followed, um, and that was very difficult to continue the activity. However, we managed to do some loud, scandalous and big protests still against the actual president, against uh, Putin, um, who was very much, uh, that there was mm. a strong link between Ukrainian president and Putin, and uh, the protests that we did, uh, that was actually the trigger um, for my asylum, the protests that we did against the Russian Orthodox Church, which plays a very important political role and in particular played a very big role in um, um, putting those girls from Pussy Riot in jail. Mm -hmm. And so in support of them, um, I chainsawed, uh, I sewed um, a wooden, eight meters wooden cross um, in the center of Kiev. Um, and that was the, the reason why uh, I had to flee. Uh, they opened a criminal case. They opened a criminal case with the accusations in hooliganism. Why they did that, <laughs> not vandalism or anything else, because um, the cross itself did not officially, was, was not officially registered. So it was, it was something that did not exist. Mm. So they couldn't write it down in the, in, the, uh, in the files. And so I still have charges, criminal charges in hooliganism in Ukraine. However, right now the situation changed and I don't think, I don't know. <laughs> so you, you fled to, uh, to, uh, to France and were granted asylum. And what happened in France after you arrived? Because there were developments, of course, of famine after your arrival. Yes, I arrived to France, um, not knowing absolutely what to do uh, with my life, but also what to do with just what to do. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anyone. I you didn't I speak French. I didn't speak French, of course. I was not ready for uh, such developments. I was I was not thinking at all of leaving Ukraine, and um, I didn't know what to do. And uh, there were already 
some uh, support groups in Paris, in France. Actually, I went first to, to Poland, and I, I stayed for a week in Poland, really not knowing what to do. Mm. And why I went to France, why I went to Paris, because there were support groups of women and women who were already trying um, uh, our tactic to do some statements about the political context um, in France. And so I went to France because if I left Ukraine, um, the only reason um, was to be able to, to be free and to be able to continue the activity. So I went to France to continue the activity with the French women. And um, um, that was the beginning of this internationalization of the movement and uh, after French branch, we got branches in other countries. And uh, today I can say with um, absolute certainty that the movement today is very different from the movement in Ukraine. The movement today belongs to very different women with um, multiple experience, with very diverse backgrounds. Women who see things also differently from us there in Ukraine. And um, I'm today the one who um, assists, who helps, who consults, who um, helps in various ways, different branches, and who enjoys coming to real people like you, face-to-face -face and um, answering those uh, real questions and explaining things that maybe are not explained by the pictures and images you see mm. in the media. That's important. We'll get back to the future of Femin later on in, in the talk. Uh, you, weren't, you had a fantastic nomination by the French president quite recently. Please tell the audience about this. <laughs> right. Um, fantastic. Well, <laughs> it was, it was um, a difficult situation for me uh, to accept this nomination from or a not. man of power huh? right yeah. um, so um, I received an invitation uh, official invitation from the French president Emmanuel Macron to be a member of um, gender equality uh, advisory council to the leaders of G7 countries mm -hmm. so um, there was a committee uh, this advisory committee was formed with 35 members 35 independent members um, um, from coming from various backgrounds, uh, um, activists like myself, uh, Denis Mukwege or Nadia Murad, who uh, won a Nobel Peace Prize last year, um, Emma Watson. Mm -hmm. um, Quite a crowd. <laughs> right, but <laughs> also experts uh, who work on gender equality questions in the United Nations. So really people from very different uh, backgrounds with very different experiences. And uh, it was an amazing aventure. Um, and I'm very lucky that at the end I agreed to work because we were these 35 members who independently worked and we produced uh, um, a, a big document of recommendations and demands uh, to the G7 leaders. Um, and uh, this was at the end presented by Emmanuel Macron to the presidents of G7 countries, and at the end it ended up in what is called today Biarritz Partnership, mm -hmm. so all G7 countries and countries' uh, partners, like there were 10 more countries that joined this partnership, signed the partnership, and each country engaged to adopt one of the laws that does not exist yet in their country, mm -hmm. one of the laws that we advise, that we recommended to be adopted to improve situation of girls and women in in those countries. So that's another... That's an applause. That's, yeah, that's... That's quite an achievement. Right, and, you know, I, I was, of course, surprised that um, they would um, 
invites a feminine activist to work on, you know, on something so, I would say, institutional. Mm -hmm. uh, me, someone who's usually proposing things from the street and, you know, who goes into those rooms of power through the window, suddenly there was a door <laughs> open and I said, well, I said to myself, you know, if I anyway want to always mm -hmm. enter those rooms mm -hmm. through the window, if the door is open, I'm going to enter. I'm going to use this opportunity and, you know, if we had to, uh, if I had to scream and go in the street, it's because I do not have these possibilities mm. to sit around the table and propose things that um, are important to me and that I work on for many years. And now suddenly they consider us apparently as someone who can give valuable mm. advices. That's mm. also a result, right? That's, <laughs> that's definitely progress. Yes. So in, uh, in your daily life in, in France, what does it look like? You, you, you <laughs> have studied further, you have a master's in now in, that you studied in, in France, yes, um, and you speak French. Oh yes, mm -hmm. in France you have to speak French, yes. And you write articles and books, right. and you I lecture I like I this? Yes, I published uh, three books in France, um, and uh, some of them were translated in other languages. Um, and. Um, yeah, I did my uh, master's degree in political science in France, in Paris. Uh, in French? No, it was an international school. Of <laughs> so I was hoping that. that. Was no, <laughs> that would be too difficult. And um, I'm also um, now writing, um, uh, writing a monthly column in uh, one of the most controversial media, right, in, in France, but in the world too, Charlie Hebdo. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, to... Big surprise to everyone um, is that I'm writing about religious women, mm -hmm. and um, I'm writing in Charlibdo about women of faith. I'm writing about women who try to reform religious institutions from, from within. within. Yes, women who try to fight sexism and misogyny of their own faith, the institutions and the dogma that they know very well. And I find it very fascinating subject. And uh, I think that um, if we want to transform the society and if we are heading towards this big utopia of absolute gender equality, if we want to have exactly what it is meant with this expression, gender equal society, then this change should happen everywhere. And uh, I think that we cannot skip such an important part of our lives as religion, and that's true that someone like myself, who is a, um, a rebellious atheist, I would say, um, I usually, in the, in the previous years, I had this perception that religion should be fought. Um, and then I looked at the work of those women who tried to reform the religion. Um, and who tried to change, who tried to eradicate sexism from those religions. And I understood that indeed those women, they destroy religions. They destroy religions as we know them today. Sexist, misogynist ideologies, institutions where only men hold power exclusively. They destroyed religions as, as religions that I don't want to have. Mm. And yet they are ready to propose other forms of those religions. So they're basically transforming? Exactly. They are feminizing and feministizing those religions. Mm -hmm. Many of them um, are doing a very passionate work of uh, interpreting the dogma through their feminist perspective. Many of them, and that's the most fascinating thing, 
are going against the rules of the institutions and becoming leaders in the places of worship. So today we, of course, hear about women imams, women rabbis, women priests. And uh, I recently met a Catholic priest woman who, uh, in 2007, uh, launched this big, today already big, movement of women's priests who, despite the official ban of Vatican, which is was still confirmed there. recently <laughs> by the progressive pope, um, um, they go against these rules. They just do not accept the position mm. of Vatican and they, they say that there is no reason why as a woman I cannot lead the prayer, why I cannot comfort people who need a comfort, who come to religion for a comfort, and there is no reason why religion should have any political stance about women's rights mm -hmm. and women's body and autonomy of women. And so they are doing a real revolution inside those um, institutions. And I then said to myself, I, I asked myself, what is worse? For a religious misogynist and religious fanatic, what, what is really more frightening? A feminine activist who is openly anti-religious and screams, I don't know, fuck God? Or a woman who is religious, mm. who takes away his status, his job, his money, and just basically destroys his institution as it is? And I think they are much more frightening than us. Mm. <laughs> That's a clever thought. So, you know, when you write about this in, in Charlie Abdul, and I'm sure all of you are aware of Charlie Abdul. That was a tragic and horrible shooting a few years back. Um, five years. Mm, well, it's five years now. In January, it will mm, be five true. years anniversary. Just before the, uh, the COP, uh, COP, uh, COP in, in Paris. Just exactly one month before. Mm. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. So how, how was your work at Charlie Abdul received when you write about this? Women in religion. That's the thing about Charlie Hebdo. There's, of course, a, a same about like about feminists. A lot mm. of mis misconceptions, a lot of myth. Mm. And um, Charlie Hebdo is a satirical magazine. is a is a secular magazine. Uh, is a magazine that, um, you know, is very very curious about exploring different ways of building society. And when I proposed uh, this idea. Uh, to the editor-in-chief, Rees, um, he was immediately, he said, yes, let's do that. that and the readers? Fun. <laughs> the response you get from the readers? Oh, uh, there was a lot of surprise, of mm. course. Mm. There was a lot of surprise from the readers, um, uh, but most of the readers were actually, they kind of, yeah, they're curious, they're interested, mm. because I think that, yeah, what is surprising is that, of course, there is a space for religious women and religious, the speech of religious mm. people in Charlie Hebdo, and plus it's done by a feminine activist. It's uh, very confusing mm. for many people, but uh, this also attracts a lot of interest, and that's how you can, I think, convince and change minds. First mm. you shock, intrigue them, make a little scandal, and then they listen mm. to you. So <laughs> it sounds like a winning <laughs> recipe. <laughs> so in, a, um, in your work, um, there's a lot of threats, misogyny, online and also I, I know that your your home in Paris there was an arson. How do you handle your fear? Are you afraid or you just sort of block it out? Uh, no, I'm not blocking it out. I'm not erasing it. I'm, I'm becoming friend with it. Mm. I just put it near myself and uh, again um, it's something you cannot erase from your life. You cannot escape from it. Um, and you can get, o you can become more powerful 
uh, than the fear itself by becoming friends, by understanding what this fear, where it comes from, what's its nature, by, by looking it into eyes and understanding why it's there. And um, yeah, it's really about, about accepting that you are afraid. Because I think that most of the people who are afraid, they're afraid of being afraid too. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something you should not do. Um, and um, I, yeah, I, I do not, you know, I, I, I actually feel very comfortable today to say that I am afraid. I'm afraid of so many things. And the most, the biggest fear I have is the people who are ready to take Kalashnikov guns, uh, and uh, just not to hear opinion of, of someone mm. else, or the people who are ready to torture activists just to stay in power, that those people will continue winning. That's, that's a bigger, the bigger fear than your personal... Fear. Absolutely, uh, personal that's um, the biggest fear, and I understand that being afraid to be hurt is actually nothing, comparing to uh, the fear I have of losing this battle to people who who want to separate the society, who want to put some groups of people above the others, who, again, want to exploit women or humiliate women. That's, a hu that's such a big fear, you know. If it's, a big f it's the biggest fear there is, and I mean, um, that's, that's the reason why, despite uh, the really feeling very often exhausted and lost, in this fight during 10 years, which is a lot. Mm. Um, despite all these feelings, I, I, I just can't give up. I just can't stop because this would mean not giving up. Just This would not just mean that I give up. This would mean that I give up to them. Mm. And that's something I can't. You're not ready to surrender Absolutely. at all? Absolutely. Mm. To them, not. Mm. To myself, yes. To them, not. <laughs> in a few years back, uh, you were in a in a shooting incident in Copenhagen. You were on stage and there were men, a man with a Kalashnikov shooting at the door in the room you were in and one person got killed outside the building. How do, how do you sort of bounce back from a thing like that? Oh. Again, that's the, that's something, at least that's how, how today I see it and how until today I managed to deal with it is not running away from it and mm. not putting it behind myself. I, I'm not able to. Um, it's again, it's, it's accepting that that's part of your story and that's now part of you. Something that I didn't choose mm. to be part of my story. Something that others choose to make part of my story. And if they choose to make it part of my story, they did it for a reason. And the reasons are, of course, very different and various, and you can have your own um, uh, guess why, but for me, you know, I see it as a very simple thing. At that very event, at that very setting, it was a very small room with maybe 40 people in the room. Mm -hmm. And we were several speakers, and again, I said to myself at the end, uh, after experience this, I. I understood what happened, and what happened was that there was one person, at least one person, mm -hmm. for whom it was easier to take a gun and go kill people than to accept that someone expresses an opinion different from his opinion, or someone would disagree or go against his own values. 
And I think that this is alarming, not only this should be alarming and not only to the group, to this group of people who were in that e event or to speakers, to us. This should be alarming to the whole society, Absolutely. to everyone. How, I mean, I also, I feel so disturbed and it's not only about the ex extreme form of opposition like taking gun. I think that we should be alarmed also by this tendency of um, especially in university, in campuses, this is producing right now a lot that whenever there is a speaker with, who, with whom majority disagree, we ban him from speaking. We don't want him to speak. And you want to protect your own ears from hearing an opposite opinion. But that's wrong, that's a failure. And not only for that person who could not express himself or herself. That's a failure, that's, that's, a, that's something, you went against your own right. You went against their right to speak, but you also went against your own right to hear, to hear a different opinion. Mm. And I think that it's only in this, with this two, well, this is an essential thing, to be able to have this freedom of conscience. You need to have freedom to hear, to listen, to, to hear different opinions. You need to create the environment of pluralism around yourself. And only in such environment you can exercise this freedom of conscience. Otherwise, we will all give up and just accept ourselves. We will create the environments of dogmas where the answers are given and everything is black and white. And I think I'm very disturbed today by the, by the political debates we observe in Europe. Indeed, everything is portrayed mm -hmm. to us as black and white. It's polarized all the time, yes. About any question, you have to be for or against mm -hmm. without, without details, without deeper discussion. Yes or no, black or white. Um, the, the experts that are proposed to us are always from radically polar mm. opinions. There is as if there is nothing in between. And I think that this way we are losing the connection between each other. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we are, today we are obsessed with looking at the differences between us. And the differences are, are there. And they will always be there. And they have always been there. And the differences are good. But today we, we really look for differences as a reason to go against each other. But again, I mean, there is so much more that, think that, that each of us shares. I mean, in this room right now, I'm sure that many of you vote for different people. Many of you have very different uh, preferences in, uh, in politics. Many have very different opinion about feminism and even very different opinion about what I'm saying right now. But you're all, all here. And you're all able to listen, to then come out of the room and agree or disagree, right? Hopefully you, you're able. Mm -hmm. And that's what, what creates societies and communities. And I think that today we are living in this context of a, of a permanent hysteria, of a permanent black or white, and really tearing um, each other, you know, are you going to go on this side or mm -hmm. that side? And the space in between, and usually the space in between, is the common space is the space for everyone. That space is, is really shrinking. It's just getting erased. And unfortunately, not so many people understand. We're taken by emotions. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I, I'm very, I'm, I'm very self-critical. 
And I'm saying to myself today that I'm wondering that what we are doing as a movement, um, you know, it was so necessary to exactly go out in the street and create this hysteric about politics. Please pay attention. That was the need in an ignorant, apolitical society. And today, the situation is actually the opposite. We lack reason. Mm. We lack a common space where the conversation can take place. We suddenly forgot how to disagree, how to have different opinions. Ina, does this mean that you're staring feminine in femin in, into a different direction? Or you still, you, I know you're still working with the, with the, with the torso oh technique. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, of course. But you also work in a different way, correct? The thing is that uh, the question of uh, sexualizing women's body <laughs> is still a consensus mm. around the mm. world. That's why <laughs> our tactic is still relevant. Mm. Um, but indeed, the messages we choose or want to care or the protests that we choose to do or not to do um, and very often, indeed, it's also the question of not doing. Mm. It's, also s it's also sometimes a political choice. Um, of course, we are, we are, sh we are reshaping and re we are rethinking everything permanently and we adopt to the context. And I will tell you, um, for example, uh, recently, in last week in France, there was a big manifestation against, it was entitled Manifestation Against Islamophobia. And the, um, the manifestation against Islamophobia was as a, as a reaction to um, attack against one uh, woman who was wearing a headscarf, an attack by a far-right politician. He basically attacked her personally. He mm. went against a, a precise woman and just attacked her, stigmatized her, and humiliated her publicly just for wearing a headscarf, mm. um, which was obviously a very xenophobic and horrible attack. However, this march was organized by uh, several Islamist leaders mm. who used the situation. Again, polarization. Exactly. Mm. So that was exactly what I was just talking. It was one extreme mm. against another extreme. How can, how can you, as an activist, step in, in the middle there? Exactly. How so can you do we, that? If we would step in the middle, mm -hmm. we would definitely be one of those who would be associated to one side mm -hmm. or another side. It's still difficult. And so though. our choice, political choice, was not going in that context mm. and choosing another, uh, another space outside, it, outside of it and making a statement that would clarify that neither of those provides a solution. Mm. In a, before we, we leave the floor open to questions, what is the situation for Femina? How many, how many countries are you active in and, and what is the plan for the future? So the branches right now are active in seven countries. And right now our membership system is changing. It's changing uh, by itself in a way, um, in a natural way. So what we, what we realize what we noticed is that the tactic, uh, famine tactic, and the idea of famine is, is already beyond the movement itself. Mm. It belongs right now to everyone, to all women. We saw women in Brazil, in Chile right now. Um, we saw women in Korea um, who are using famine tactic, who are, um, you know, writing slogans across their chest. Without being associated with without you. Without being mm. part of the movement. And you're fine with that. We are proud of that, of course. and uh, today we understand that, yeah, it's much bigger than our 
branches. And uh, um, today, for example, recently we did a big march in, in France against the victims of domestic violence. Uh, in France today we count 135 women who were killed by their yeah. husbands or ex-husbands in 2019 only. And um, we made a big march when at that point France counted 114 victims of feminicide, uh, of a murder by a husband or ex-husband. Um, and we made a big march of 114 women across the streets, and many of those women were victims of domestic violence mm. themselves who are not members of FEMIN since a long time, but they wanted mm. to join that precise protest. And so we understand that today that's the way for FEMIN to develop, is to be taken by, by other women. Mm. The biggest challenges that we're facing now moving forward in terms of women's rights and, and the freedom of speech, they're intimately connected, of course. What would you say those are, the biggest challenges? I think you listed one already, polarization. Well, um, I mean, you just said feminism and freedom of speech, and exactly these two components, you know, it's, that's something about, I think, the biggest challenge for society today. Of course, we we realized it with the Me Too movement, that mm. the society did not listen to women. Women were speaking since a long time. I, I hate when Me Too movement is defined as something like, oh, women began to speak. No, mm. women were talking mm. always about the assaults and humiliations they face. But that was the moment suddenly society paid attention. We suddenly started hearing them. So it's about, again, this right that I said to you earlier, it's about you listening and hearing other opinions and experiences of people. And I think this is something that will open up uh, for feminism um, more, more possibilities and more windows, and it's, it does already today. However, I think that we sh cannot ignore that the biggest challenge today is, of course, the backlash mm -hmm. to all the progress that uh, feminists reached. There is always a backlash um, against, uh, you know, whenever there is a progress, there is always a backlash. Mm. And of course, the backlash today is really visible and it's represented by very precise people, like uh, um, leaders of the most powerful states mm. who are mm. doing, making publicly and very proud of uh, sexist statements where, you know, humiliating women. So, uh, you know, people like Trump, people like still Putin even, people like Erdogan who mm. says that real women do not laugh out loud or that real women have uh, at least four children. Mm. Um, you know, so all these kind of statements from powerful men, this is the, the very visible backlash against the progress that feminists did. And so today the challenge for all feminists is to be the backlash against the backlash. Mm -hmm. And that's um, the thing that I think we have to concentrate on but I will be here a little bit maybe critical and sneaky <laughs> about uh, feminist movement internationally. I think that we cannot be efficient backlash against this backlash if we do not learn solidarity. Ah. I think that, I, th I still think, I, maybe some feminists will attack me right now, but I'm ready for that. I still think that feminism internationally lacks solidarity. We did not mm. learn to work with each other closely despite our differences. Look at the far right in Europe. They're uniting, they're, they're having all the time unions, coalitions, they support each other. Look at the dictators, at sexes, they're all working together. I mean, just 
A few months ago, I was amazed in Crimea took a place, a very big international event, a meeting, a rassemblement of the far right from all over Europe. And of course, uh, with a big support from Russia, and they called it unofficially as an event of Putin's friends. Oh Obviously, dear. they all have a lot of differences, but they're able to unite. They support each other, and we are not And you're saying that's not happening in the feminist movement? On many issues, it still does not. We mm. still put in front, very often, our differences. Mm. And very often, we say, well, oh, we don't have time for oh that. I want work with that group because mm. we disagree mm. on that mm. thing. You know, and I think that this is something that is harming us. Mm. And uh, on, the, on the issues of uh, sexual harassment and abuse, this was an issue that finally reunited feminists. For that was a momentum also why Me Too was so powerful, mm -hmm. because finally we were all reunited, and we, we were all there, we were behind mm -hmm. that question. And I think that we have to manage to keep that momentum and go continue with that attitude, otherwise they will continue winning. My last question to you, Ina, is what can the people in this room do? What can we all do better and differently? So many things. You don't have to do what I do. You don't have to take off your top. You can wear a t-shirt with a slogan. You will already change mind, at least maybe of your child or your mm -hmm. husband or your wife or your sister. You can um, write a blog. You can uh, uh, have a conversation with your family who, does, who has a maybe traditional conservative values. You can vote. You have to vote. You, you cannot, no, that's not an mm. option. You have to vote. Thank you. <laughs> you, you have to be self-critical and critical to everything you receive. And there are so many things each of us can do and we should stop thinking that, you know, a changing political situation is either being in politics, so literally being a politician, or being one of those activists who spend their life running in the street with posters. No, actually, there are people like myself, if we exist, if we still have to do, I'm so tired, I don't want to be an activist all my life. But if we still exist and if we still have to do, it's because majority of society ignores their mm. political responsibilities. It's because majority of people prefers to ignore the problems and difficult questions and uncomfortable conversations and uncomfortable subjects. That's why we still have to do it. You know, when people ask me, what do you want to do in the future? Mm. I know what I want to do in the future. I want to be a post-feminist in a post-patriarchal society. But I need your help. I need you to do your part. <laughs> Wonderful, Lena. Now we have people with uh, microphones. So just hands up and uh, please state your name and your question. Don't be shy. We're all friends here. <laughs> this one, great. Hello, uh, my name is Jens. Uh, this year, it's it was it's been 30 years since the Berlin Wall fell, and then two years after that, the Soviet Union collapsed. I don't think anyone predicted at the time. I I, I guess I can't remember anyway that the post-Soviet countries and the Eastern former Eastern Bloc would be such a major exporter of uh, trafficked girls mm. and porn and all these things. Wha what, what happened? 
Thank you. During every crisis, every political crisis, every op uh, economic crisis, and that was what uh, the collapse of Soviet Union suddenly uh, became, um, the whole society suffers and is getting sort of a form of punishment uh, because of the political situation that happens sometimes without, you know, without people really even being involved in it. But women will always suffer double price and double punishment. And that was exactly what happened in Ukraine. Um, the, I was born the year of collapse of USSR, so the decade, the, the, uh, what is known in, in, um, in Eastern Europe as we call it dashing 90s, um, which was, of course, a, at an extraordinary time in all, in all understanding. It was a time where, um, you know, I what I remember as a child, the, we didn't have electricity at home, we didn't have hot water at home, we didn't have food. Mm. Um, my parents didn't have jobs because nobody had jobs, because everything just stopped. Everything was just frozen. And the only few possibilities that were there for people to survive, of course, were taken by men. And women were pushed back into their traditional um, roles and missions. So there was a sort of a, a comeback of sexism in its rough way that was applied in literally in, in on life of women. The women had to do dirty jobs if there were any and service jobs. And of course, among the service jobs was sexual services. And uh, that's how the, the market of sexual exploitation developed. There was no any, con for, for a while, there was, there was simply no, no governments, no, no, no built system, political system, no, no economic system. We, in Ukraine, we got a political currency six years after the collapse of USSR. We didn't have literally money, something that looks like money. We didn't have it. Mm. So for six, seven years, it was just a chaos. It was absolute, um, I, I don't know if I should use this word, but it was, yeah, it was literally what you would describe as anarchy. There was nobody to, uh, there were no institutions to control, to, to, to build a kind of sort of a system. And so, uh, the, you know, the, the, there were a lot, of, uh, a lot of illegal businesses were opened and one of those businesses was also sex industry where men would um, earn money uh, you know, and women would be the, the, the exploited machines that would provide these earnings and uh, that's how the market was developed exactly right after the collapse of USSR. That's basically the environment that was created at that time was that was the environment uh, of uh, absolute vulner vulnerability for the whole society and double vulnerability for women. And, uh, you know, I always see it, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fact that uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, women are poor, uneducated, pretty, good, you know, a good kind of commodity commodity mm. already there and that's that's why this market still exists mm. um, and uh, as, as I said sex tourism is one of the biggest attraction but wait I, I have to make clear that prostitution by the way and sex industry is illegal by law in, in Ukraine when was it when was it, it was illegal? never legalized ah. hmm. 
it, I mean, it was mm. always illegal mm. from Soviet times. It was never legalized. So as I, as I explained, it was in the time of this chaos and um, people were doing everything they could, mm. <laughs> we could say it this way, to survive and uh, women were exploited um, and men were exploiting women. Thank you, Inna. Let's take another question. Uh, thank you for this interview. It has been quite enlightening. And thank you that you are here. You. Um, you mentioned the, the terrible shooting in Copenhagen in 2015, was it? Uh, and I remember that event because uh, I wasn't there or anything, but I talked a lot to some of my relatives at the time about uh, one of the speakers at uh, the specific event, uh, a Swedish artist named Lars Wilks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, I can be honest with that, my, my family members wasn't too happy with him because he has been quite outspoken against religion. <laughs> uh, and uh, afterwards they went like, yeah, he, uh, he pretty much brought it upon himself. Uh, and I gotta say, at the time I kind of agreed with them uh, mm. And then later on, uh, I started to value freedom of speech and freedom of expression, etc. Uh, and I think that today, I feel that it is very important for people like uh, like Lars Wilkes or yourself and others to be able to criticize religion, any religion or any ideology or whatever. Um, but at the same time, it, it pains me because it's still a fact that people were shot at that event because of mm. the fact mm. that he was so much, you know, outspoken. Um, so I'm torn between, I mean, should we draw the line somewhere? We, we are we're all agreeing about who the bad guy is, the, the one who pulled the trigger, of course, but should we draw the line uh, somewhere about what kind of activism is, it's not even activism, but you know, do we have to draw the line somewhere or would drawing a line, a line at all just be surrendering to the terrorists? I mean... Thank you. Yeah. I think we need to make that a question now. Thank you. Inna, I think there's enough for you to reflect on. Uh, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I'm not... I probably will not go into discussion about opinions of Lars Wilkes. I will only say that, obviously, with many opinions of Lars Wilkes, I do not agree. And um, I went... That event was actually dedicated to Charlie Hebdo, and there was mm. an ambassador mm. of France was also one of the speakers. Um, so it was not event of Lars Wilkes. Um, and um, another thing is about what opinion can we express and should we draw, draw a line, you know? I think that, once again, it's everyone, it's same about Charlie Hebdo, for example. People were saying, well, Charlie Hebdo insulted so many Muslims because they drew a Mohammed on the cover a Mohammed who was smiling and whatever, smoking a cigarette. I, I absolutely understand and accept, and I know that it could insult uh, or make uncomfortable many people. But the thing is that this is a drawing, this is a newspaper, that if you want to read it and see it, you buy it. If you don't want, you do not. Same about anything else. If you want to come and listen to Lars Wilkes or even now, to me, mm. you know, if you are curious or interested, if you agree or disagree, but you're ready to listen, you come. If you're not ready, you do not come. And I think that this is something that is very important, that this choice we all still have. However, I think that, again, as I said, that prohibiting someone to express themselves 
as long as it's an opinion, just an opinion and not a call for violence, I think that's the line exactly here. The line is between you know, expressing a provocative opinion that might hurt someone because they disagree, it's one thing. And another thing is that it might hurt someone because it, it called people to actually physically hurt someone. So a call for violence, a call for hate, that's, that's the line where, you know, that's already where we draw the line. Mm. The rest is opinion. Um, Charlie Abdul, I mean, I'm not very aware of the drawings of Lars Wilkes, except of the most scandalous of this dog. Mm -mm -mm. Um, I, I did not follow his career, but I can talk about Charlie Abdul. Um, you know, again, it's, it's a drawing. What can be more innocent mm. than a drawing? I mean, it does not harm anyone, it cannot kill anyone. It can obviously hurt you because it may be, says something opposite from what you think or your values. But look, you know how many times I'm hurt every day? I hear sexist politicians speaking on the media. I hear presidents who say that women should stay at home. I hear um, religious leaders who teach that women should be obedient to wives because they were created as, you know, in addition to a man mm. or I'm, so, I'm insulted by so many people. And I know that forbidding that priest to say that, I will not win. I know that I will win if I will come up with a much more valuable argument. Mm. If I will come up and face him with my own vision of the world and convince everybody else that what I propose is much more inclusive and much more respectful to all of us, religious or not, than what that priest proposes. I think that's the way how we can win, first of all, and that's the way how we can still keep the society, still be together. So I'm absolute, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fanatic of free speech. I'm, I absolutely feel dedicated to the right of everyone to express their opinion, once again, as long as it's not a call for hate or violence. And I'm fighting for everyone's right to hear different opinions. Because if I was able myself to evolve in many things is because I heard opinions of my opponents. And some of them had much more stronger arguments than I did. And that's why I could evolve and could change my opinions too. Thank you. <laughs> Another question, please? Great. What is the situation for women, for feminists and activists in Ukraine today? What has happened during the years you have been away? Thank you. Thank you. Um, so in Ukraine, um, not much is going on right now uh, regarding feminism. Um, a lot of going on right now um, regarding LGBT rights. And that's very, uh, very important and uh, something that makes me very happy because that was another taboo, mm. uh, another kind of a subject that you do not talk. Um, as you know that Ukraine uh, in the last years um, was also under military attack from the side of Russia, we lost 30% of the territory, 10,000 civilians were killed in the east of Ukraine, 
And so the political context is, once again, is, as everywhere else, is very polarizing. Um, it's about uh, are you with, with Ukraine or, uh, or with Russia? It's about are you for Ukrainian people or for Russian people? It's very polarizing and very often wrong. Um, and um, the question of women, obviously, as anywhere else, is the last question that com comes out on political table. And um, it's not there now. The country, the society is preoccupied mostly by uh, recovering its national identity and recovering its kind of the, the feeling of sovereignty that the state was supposed to have, mm -hmm. but um, then suddenly could just be attacked by a neighboring state and lose a big part of the territory. So the political context right now, unfortunately, does not allow for a big development in feminism. But there is development in human rights, and in particular LGBT rights. Um, and uh, I will tell you, and it's something I was saying also, I remember last year in Stockholm. You know, when people also ask me, what can we do for countries like Ukraine, how we can help, how we can support people, and I tell you, if, if Ukraine today is, uh, if I'm able to say that in Ukraine there is a development in LGBT rights, it's because Ukrainian people are looking at the countries like yours. And they're looking at the progresses you made. And they're looking how you were able to be more inclusive for, for all members of society. And that's why this country is right now taking this path um, and uh, is taking care of human rights. So the best thing you can do, I always repeat this, the best thing you can do to support those countries is take care of your own democracy, take mm. care of your own human rights, and take care of your own advancement and developments. I'm so bothered to see how European countries today lose a lot of mm. things that were achieved and how people do not understand that that's a that's a treasure, that's a happiness, that's something that so many people around the world do not have a uh, possibility to enjoy. And very often it's taken here for granted, something that will never disappear. But you're wrong. And I think that in many examples we already see that in many countries the, the rights and possibilities and security is slowly disappearing. Maybe it's not so visible yet in Europe, in Western Europe, but it does. And uh, the best thing you can do for Ukrainians and for yourself is taking care of your own democracy. Mm. Thank you, and I, I vividly remember you saying this on the stage in Stockholm. It's, it rings very true, even in Sweden, right? Mm. We have time for one more question? Yeah. Over here, or maybe yeah. two. I wonder, do you have your family still back in the Ukraine, and can you go back? I did not go uh, back to Ukraine since seven years, since I left in 2012. Um, the, I'm, I have the status of political refugees, so I had to basically ex give away my, my Ukrainian passport for the passport of refugee and being this way protected by French state uh, from any possible uh, political persecutions from Ukrainian state. The country, the context in the country changed a lot. Right now there is a new government, new president, uh, new context once again. Um, however, the criminal case is still open. And um, I mean, uh, that's a question I'm not ready to answer right now, even to myself, if I should go there now, and if I should go back and 
from where I will be more useful? Mm. I cannot answer that question. At least for now, I feel more useful from here. Um, and um, my family, everyone is in Ukraine. I left alone and uh, uh, in a, uh, yes, so absolute solitude as a refugee without any, any support from um, friends or family from Ukraine. I mean, support uh, uh, kind of a physical being together mm. or something. So it's, it was about yeah, learning to live also in um, emotional isolation, I think, too. Uh, because, of course, being away from your family um, is, uh, yeah, it has its own effects and it's very difficult. Um, yeah, so in a way, some, sometimes I also feel that um, I had, I, I, I had, there was this life in Ukraine and now there is this life in exile and there is a big kind of black hole between those two different lives and those, those are two different periods of my life, but it feels like as two different lives back there, I had home, I had family, and back here, I, uh, yeah, I don't have family, I have a community, mm. I don't have home, I, I just travel all the time, I have many homes, so it's, um, it's also something that uh, um, I think that uh, being a refugee is, um, it's, uh, it's a difficult experience in itself, and um, I also, I I'm, I'm often make a parallel between uh, me being a, a refugee, a, like actual ref a refugee in another country, and uh, anyone being a woman. You know, it's like everywhere you go, you are not welcome. You are not weighted. There is no place for you. Yeah. Uh, you always bring a discomfort a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the only, so the only home actually anywhere back in Ukraine or here now in exile in France, the only home I have is this body, nothing else. So in any way, you're a refugee as a woman, right? <laughs> Thank you, Vina. Let's take one last question. There's a hand up over there. Uh, yes, uh, I was wondering, uh, you said that you were uh, uh, fanatical about free speech, uh, except when it came for, uh, you were about uh, hate speech or stuff like that. Uh, and also that we should treasure democracy and everything. But uh, in this increasingly polarized society, that uh, global society that we are in, how do you speak to people who are spewing hate and lies, uh, both on, a, on an individual level, but also on a grander scale to groups of people? How do, you, do you have any tips on how mm. to speak to mm. these people? Are you talking about uh, people you know, or like politicians, the political leaders? Just so those are friends or family or, or... Anyone that spews hate. Mm. Mm. I think, uh, I mean, in a, in, a, in a kind of intimate settings, it's the, the best thing is always to bring it to themselves, to, to bring it, you know, to kind of, to, to, to ask them what would they d would what would they would do if I don't know their child would was gay, mm. um, yeah, or what would uh, or yeah, or even actually say what if I would like to say to your parents what if I would be gay would you hate me or kick me out of the house? You know, it's always I think people are um, getting very emotional and very uh, kind of. Um, dogmatic and very opinionated when it's about others. And once it's about us, I think 
those are the situations when you really are able to change your visions and open your eyes. And um, yeah, always, I, I mean, that's how I did, for example, with my family too. Um, you know, my parents obviously um, never imagined that their daughter would, would be doing what she was doing for the last 10 years. Um, and at one time I asked them, so if I have this political opinion, I mean, they were trying to stop me many times during the first years and kind of prohibit me, basically to forbid me to do all this protest. But I told them, but it's not just what I do, that's what I think and that's what I am. Mm. So w are you going to, you know, to forbid me to be what I am? Are you going to forbid me to think what I think? Okay, I will stop going in the street, but that's what I think. Like, that's inside me and that's what I am. And that's something that changes, uh, you know, their perception in many cases uh, when, people are, um, when people are able to understand that love and uh, um, the links that we have are much more important than the differences we have and the different opinions that we have. In many cases, in some cases, it's people are not able to do that. And for them, having different opinion is much more important than anything else. But still, majority of people, I think, are able to understand whenever you bring it to, uh, to themselves. Mm. Just put them in those situations. Just ask them, what and what would you do? Mm. Ina, you are here again in the context of We Have a Dream. And uh, yes. Albert Viking and Oskar Hedlund are sitting here front row. Uh, <laughs> the photographer and, and the man behind uh, the idea of the book. Uh, together you've worked with this fantastic exhibition and you can now see your exhibition, their exhibition in Malmö. It's been in Lund, so if you, if you missed it when it was in Lund, you can see it at Malmö Live, correct? Albert and Oskar, yes, they're nodding, great. <laughs> and it will be until when? How, how long? January 5th. 12th. 12th. January 12th. You can see it in the foyer of Malmö Live. Correct. So don't miss it if you didn't see it. And you can always see it again. I for sure will go and see it again. Inna, it was wonderful listening Thank to you, you talking to you. And you. we're so grateful that you do what you do. Right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh, I, I stay here. What do I do? <laughs> Thank you so Thank much you. for coming here today, both of you. But before I let you off the stage, we have a tradition here at Student Afton, and I want to ask both of you who you would like us to invite here to this stage. Oh yeah, um, I'm so excited because I want you. I want you to invite one of those infamous misogynists and sexists, and that he sits on this seat and you ask him exactly the same questions, mm. and you listen to him, and you try to convince him <laughs> as, you know, what you, uh, you, you try to, to bring him to the situation um, where he would imagine himself being treated the way he treats others. Mm -hmm. And I think, because I think that this would be valuable for you to understand why someone would think such a, would have such an opinion, and this, but more importantly, you as a, as a group, as a crowd, you would be able to change an opinion of such person. So mm. I think that we should never lock ourselves with Do you with have somebody especially in mind? Yeah, of course, there's so many of them, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, I don't, I, the main point is that I don't want you to feel comfortable in this room. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that that's very important, that you invite someone very uncomfortable, much more uncomfortable than I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Keep us on our toes. <laughs> 
I hope this person has not been here yet. I don't think she has. It's Greta. I'm an, I'm an activist uh, in my daily life in, in terms of climate. I'm a climate activist. So, and I've actually in, actually interviewed Greta once uh, way back uh, before when she was when she started. So, I would like to have her here. She for sure makes us uncomfortable. You're right, and she needs to make us more uncomfortable. So, please invite Greta. Yeah. <laughs> Great suggestions. We will try to arrange that. Uh, Thank you, thank and you. thank you also to the audience. Uh, I would like to uh, gi give a little tip that you should follow us on uh, social media, mm -hmm. both to um, see our upcoming events, but also since we will be recruiting new members to the Student Afton Committee. <laughs> Once again, thank you, and thank, thank you. you. Have thank a good you. evening. Thank you. för att du har lyssnat. Studentafton vill också tacka podcastens huvudsponsor TL Sound som har gjort den här inspelningen möjlig. Vi vill också uppmana dig att följa oss på Facebook och Instagram för att inte missa nästa afton. Sök på Studentafton.